Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 to 15. Verses 1 to 15. Follow along as I read. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did that service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His holy word. It's good to be back again in the book of Hebrews. I told you, I think the last time we were in this, a couple weeks back, that Hebrews really is a spec book. It's a a blueprint of the gospel. If you wanted to know the exact details of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you come to the book of Hebrews. As part of my introduction today, I'd like to jog your memories for a moment. 
particularly with an account of Jesus' ministry as it's recorded in the book of Luke, chapter 24. Many of you know this account. This is where Jesus is walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as Jesus does do in redemptive history at times, he's veiling his true identity. you remember that? And there on that road, he's walking with them. He begins to talk to them and he begins to give them more clarity and understanding. He found them at a point, you, you may recall, uh, at a point of somewhat of uh, doubt and dismay. Here they were, walking along, talking amongst themselves about Jesus, who they believed was the Messiah, who's been crucified and was laid in a tomb among the dead. This was the Messiah, the promised deliverer, the promised conqueror. And here he is in a tomb. And so they're trying to piece all this together, aren't they? And we know that Jesus started, much like the Apostle Paul we read in Acts 28 this morning, Jesus started with, the, with Moses and the prophets, and he began to connect the dots for them to explain to them that the Messiah had to suffer, first suffer, that he may enter into his glory. And then he began to connect the dots for them furthermore in the scriptures to show that how all of the scriptures pointed to him himself. And do you remember the response that those disciples gave as recorded by Luke when they were told the entire story. Luke records that their hearts burned within them. Well, why did their hearts burn within them? Well, because when they got the whole story, when they, when they understood more details of all of the redemptive story, they found great confidence and certainty at a time when they needed it the most. And this is an important truth, and I'm using it for my introduction here, because that's exactly what this sermonic letter from this inspired writer to the first century Jews was seeking to do as well. We'll see as we get in subsequent chapters that they were surrounded by some hostilities. We don't know the exact details, but we do got to remind ourselves they were tempted to doubt the certainty and the validity of the gospel and the promises. And so what the inspired writer of Hebrews is doing by way of covenant, by way of examples of the old covenant and the new covenant, he's giving them a more fleshed out understanding of the entire story for the hope that they confess, they profess Jesus Christ unto the very end. And beloved, that's what the letter of Hebrews does for us, especially where we find ourselves in what we could say are more doctrinal messages relating to the covenants. I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes you get down in these trenches of the Bible, and if you really want to exhaust the gems that are there, they can get kind of technical. But remember, what the writer of Hebrews is doing down in these caverns of unmining the rest of the story for us is he's holding up gems that he discovers And the gems are there for you and I to gather together and look and say, Oh, yes. Yes, my feet are on solid ground. I know that Jesus Christ, He was the person 
He was the plan of God unto the glory, the goal of God to bring God glory. Yes, yes and amen. Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. So no matter what may come along, no matter what may shake my confidence, when you unmind the nuggets of truth that we are in the book of Hebrews and especially today, Dear friends, they're all intended for you to, in your journal, in your taking notes of the redemptive story of God through His Son Jesus, you're to fill in between the lines all these little details. And that's what we have today in verse 15. Some interesting details of the story of who Jesus was, what Jesus did in the overall plan and goal of God. And when you walk away from it, you realize This builds up my confidence that Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. He is a mediator and a high priest of a better covenant. So how are we going to approach verse 15? This nugget of truth that I know I just marveled at when I was looking at it was so encouraged by it. I want to handle this truth in verse 15 under the sermon title, Christ's blood and its dual covenant significance. Christ's blood and its dual covenant significance. You have in your sermon notes a translation that I think is a better translation of what we're going to be looking at today in verse 15. It's from the NASB 95 version. Read that with me, and I'm going to explain a little bit the sermon title. We're going to be looking at verse 15 here. The Word of the Lord says, For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death has taken place, For the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Why am I calling the sermon Christ's blood its dual covenant significance? Because in verse 15, we see that there are those who are being spoken of that were under, quote, the first testament. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And we see that there's a mediator spoken of, this is Jesus, of course, of the New Covenant. There's two covenants being talked about. There's one mediator, and that mediator's work, i.e. his death, verse 15, is somehow or another playing a significant role and a significant part In both of these covenants, it's playing a significant part for those under the old covenant. And of course, as we've been learning all through chapter 8, his blood plays a significant part of those under the new covenant who comes after the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Christ's blood indeed has a dual covenant significance. What's being treated in verse 15 primarily is the significance of his blood upon those under the first covenant. And we're going to seek to understand the significance of Jesus' blood upon them in that first covenant by being guided in three questions which I've given to you 
in your sermon notes. These, these three questions will guide us through understanding what is being taught in verse 15. The first question is how could Jesus, who was not yet born, nor not yet sacrificed, how could He have affected those living under the Old Covenant? Look back at your notes at the translation I gave you. It says, For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Well, first of all, we see that the the verse starts with this transitional phrase, for this reason. He's talking about what he taught in verses 11 through 14. For this reason, the old sacrificial system was inferior. It could not give peace of conscience. It could not provide the means by which God would no longer remember their sins. And so for this reason, Jesus dies. We learned that last time. And for this reason, He is a mediator of a better covenant. So that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first, this is why he's called the mediator. He's, you see, the old priest in verses 11-14, they couldn't bring the mediation. They couldn't bridge the breach that had happened. They couldn't make people perfect. They couldn't give the peace of conscience. So this, for this reason, this is why Jesus came. This is why he did this. This is why he's called the mediator. Uh, we learned last week that behind verse 11, it says Christ being come, His mediatorial work, we see here in verse 15, for the old covenant saints, was part of His, re- his incarnation. Him being come was based upon His work as a mediator. We're seeing here today, we're learning here today, a mediator for those who lived under the old covenant. Okay, that's interesting. Because up until this point, we've kind of been focusing, it seems as though that uh, whoever wrote, whoever was inspired to write Hebrews was writing Hebrews to a New Testament community. And you almost could fall into an error thinking, oh, of course, yeah, he's a mediator of the new covenant for those who come after the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But verse 15 says, for this reason... The inferiority of the first covenant, the sacrificial system, all of that it could not do. For this reason, Jesus came and He's the mediator of a better covenant for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first. Under the first. We're not surprised or not shouldn't be surprised by this because this writer has been emphasizing over and over again for us that the blood of the sacrificial animals could not provide the grounds for God to no longer remember their sins. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4, he reiterates that fact there, that place. He says, in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. However, what we have here in verse 15 is that Jesus' blood, it serves as an instrument by which the better covenant can legally be established 
which allows God to no longer look upon the sins of individuals not only living during Jesus' time and afterwards, me and you, but we see that it provided the grounds covenantally by which God would never remember the sins and iniquities of those who were called under the first covenant. And now we're getting somewhere to having an answer for the first question. What was the first question? How could Jesus, who was not yet born, not yet sacrificed, have any effect upon those living under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, because without the shedding of His blood, without the shedding of the Messiah's blood, the prerequisite of the better covenant that God required in order that he would perform the action of never looking upon the sins of individuals anymore until that blood was shed in time, space, and history, all those who died prior to this priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the earth would have died guilty in their sins. To say it another way, there will not be one person who has ever lived in the eternal inheritance, had possession of it, that is not there on the merits of the blood of Jesus Christ. Boom, there's the bomb. Think about what this is saying. Think about how it's orientating all of history on the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. That just added a big paragraph to the the story, didn't it? In their understanding, these first century Jews, this truth that's in verse 15, for this reason, Jesus is the mediator, the one who is breaching the gap between a holy God and sinful man in his priestly work, verses 11 through 14, representing and mediating this better covenant that the first one couldn't do. For this reason, since a death has taken place, his death for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. That's what that says. Now, the application of that is this there's only one way, there's only always been one way of salvation. There's only only been one way throughout all the redemptive history that anyone will ever go to heaven. And it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus Christ. It teaches us that there's all throughout redemptive history only one true church of Christ. Right? Those who were called, we'll deal with that in a moment. And those who have had their sins By faith, forgiven by the merits and the work of Jesus. Not the sacrificial system. There's only one true church. And like I said before, these truths of the significance of Christ's actual physical blood being shed in history so that the Old Testament saints could be forgiven. Beloved, it orientates all of history moving not only forward, but also looking back upon the person, the plan, and the work of Jesus. But notice now also that the verse is teaching us that not only is the actual blood of Christ significant for the actual redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, the sacrificial system couldn't do that, they only had temporal appeasement, but... It's also required 
it's also required that those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Look back at the verse, especially the way it's worded in the uh, translate in the NASB. It captures it perfectly. I have all the translations. I thought the, 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 the NASB 95 captured the truth, the doctrinal truth of what this verse is saying the best. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that were committed under the first, those who have been called, notice, may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. They may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Now here's where you need to look at your sermon notes. That Greek word, lambano, that's translated in the NASB's English as may receive, it's, if we exegeted that word in the Old Testament, or all throughout the Bible, sorry, in the New Testament, we would see it's used 133 times and translated as the word receive, or 106 times as the word take, Three times is have, and three times is catch. All of those are good translations, because listen, you have it in your sermon notes. Look at what it means. To take with one's hand, lay hold of any person or thing in order to use or to possess it. Go back and read the verse again now. He's the meteor of a new covenant, so that since a death, his death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first, that's the, that's the forgiveness of sins, those who have been called may receive or take hold of, they may have, they may possess the promise of the internal inheritance. By this, understanding what that means and what that's saying, we can rightly interpret that this phrase as meaning this, Until the shedding of Christ's blood, the elect and the called ones living prior to His sacrificial death did not receive. They did not take lay hold of the promise of eternal inheritance. Do you see that? That's pretty significant. What do you say? We're considering the significance of Christ's blood in the in the covenants, and especially as it relates to the old covenant. Not only was his blood required so that their sins could be forgiven, but his actual blood had to be spilled so that they could lay hold of, so that they could receive, so that they could possess the promise of the internal inheritance. This helps us answer our second question. What role does his blood play in connection with them receiving, taking, laying hold of the promise of eternal inheritance? Well, until it actually was spilled, there was no way any Old Testament saint could claim, possess, receive the promise of the internal inheritance. In the NASB, may receive, um, take hold of, that's what it means. Now, at this point, let us stop and ask ourselves, what exactly was the promised inheritance? Verse 15 is saying, not only was his blood required 
So the sins could be covered, but it was also recovered that they could possess something called an internal inheritance. What was that? Let's just give a, a, a refresher for ourselves. We unpacked this when we were dealing with Hebrews 6.13, especially in the life and the mentioning of Abraham. And there, in dealing that verse, we demonstrated that the promise of the internal inheritance, which was given first to Abraham and then to the later generations of Jews that would come after him, had attached with it, this promise of internal inheritance, concepts such as land, such as seed, and such as blessing. And while we looked at that, and we clearly identified that all of the Old Testament called ones, all the Old Testament saints, Abraham and all Isaac, Jacob, and all the other believers, while they understood those as having a physical fulfillment and reality, beloved, we also biblically demonstrated that they, with the eyes of faith, saw past them, and they knew that the internal inheritance that was promised laid behind the physical land, It was actually the heavenly rest that they were longing and hoping for. Hebrews 11, 8-10, this is how we make sense of that verse where the inspired writer says, By faith Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so then, in verse 15, the eternal inheritance that was promised that required the shedding of Jesus' blood before they could receive it was what? Heaven. It was heaven. It was the eternal rest that Abraham was looking past the physical land unto. He wanted to go home, brother. You want to go home. Your promise of eternal inheritance and rest is nothing less than that state of blessedness where there's no more sin. You're in the presence of your Savior and your Lord. You have received the eternal inheritance that's promised to you in the gospel and guaranteed by what? the righteousness and the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. So, at this point, we have demonstrated, and we are rightly handling this verse, that the Old Testament saints did not receive, lay hold of, have in possession of, internal inheritance until Jesus shed His blood. And this is we, where we are creeping up upon the precipice of our third question. And the question, this third question, to really, to really get out of this verse what the inspired apostle is writing and showing us, which was very significant for the first century Jews, this precipice of this question is surrounded by steep drop-offs on both sides. If Christ's actual blood was required for the Old Testament elect to Labano receive, lay hold of the promise of the eternal inheritance, eternal rest, then here's the question. What did the deceased believers of the Old Testament receive while they were waiting in time, space, and history? for the required shedding of Christ's blood. And as I said, there's extreme drop-offs on both sides of this question, and so we have to approach it with caution. And while we can't escape 
that which this question demands of us to explore as students and Bereans of the Bible, brothers and sisters, we also have to acknowledge that whatever we conclude cannot be our opinions. It has to be founded upon the witness of God's revelation in His Word. So we're moving into a realm of verse 15 of recognizing Jesus' blood had to be required that they may receive Lebano, the eternal inheritance. So the logical question that demands of us to search out is this, what did they receive then when they died? Their bodies go into grave. Their souls and their spirits separate from their bodies. But Jesus yet hasn't shed His blood. You follow me? You follow the logic here? All right. You ready to go to search out this answer? All right, here we go. What we're talking about is this. Where, we're talking about the place of the dead of the Old Testament saints, aren't we? That's what we're asking here. We have to ask it because that's what verse 15 is forcing us to ask. And the first thing we have to acknowledge as we begin to understand the place of the dead is first of all, as you see in your sermon notes, is to be reminded of the nature, or you could say the composition of us as humans. Humans have both a physical and a spiritual nature. We're not beasts. We're creating the image of God. And when a person dies, talking about the Old Testament saints specifically here, this is true of all of us, but you understand where I'm going with this. When a person dies, those two natures, they separate. The body goes into the ground. And what we're addressing right now is what happened to the souls of the Old Testament saints. Verse 15 seems very likely to be implying and teaching that they didn't go to heaven and receive the eternal inheritance. So, let's go to the Bible. The Bible, and I've given you this in your sermon notes because this is what I dug up. And I've given you a link to a website there, very helpful article about this topic of where the Old Testament saints went, their souls, when they died. The Bible teaches us that the souls and the spirits of the dead, first of all, were not just wandering around in limbo. Let's be clear about that. There was a very particular place that the Old Testament describes where the Old Testament saints went to. They described it as a place called Sheol. It's used 67 times in the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew word Sheol is translated in our English Bibles oftentimes as hell. This is unfortunate because it gives the reader the idea that Sheol in the Bible designates the eternal place where the condemned and judged go to be tormented and there's you know the gnashing of teeth in which the worm never dieth, right? That's what you think when you read the word hell. However, it's important for us as we're seeking out this answer to know that the Hebrew word shehol, as you see in your notes, it's used in the Old Testament basically five different ways. The first way is it's the unseen realm of the dead, all the dead. Not just the good guys, I mean not just the bad guys, but also the good guys. It's just an unseen realm of the dead. It also, depending on how it's used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, 
It can refer to the grave. That means the actual place where the bodies are buried. Uh, here's an example of that. Uh, you have Jacob weeping over the news of Joseph dying. And he says in Genesis 37-35, Then all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And what did Jacob say? He says, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Well, <laughs> guys, Jacob's not saying he's going down to hell. He's either saying... I, will, I think what he's saying there is I'm going to go down into the ground, right? He could have been saying, I'll go down into Sheol, the unseen realm where everyone goes when I, because of this event that's taken place. So it's, it's used in the Old Testament to describe the unseen realm. It's used in the Old Testament as a physical grave where our bodies go. It's used thirdly, specifically as a place of punishment for the wicked. Sheol's used that way as it's a place for torment. Fourthly, it's used at times symbolically. Fifthly, it's used as a place from where the righteous are delivered. Now that's interesting. Sheol's used in the Old Testament as an unseen realm from where the righteous will be delivered from. Now what's important is that whenever you're reading that word in the Old Testament, you have to let the context, like we just did with Jacob, tell you how the word she-hole is supposed to be understood. And you'll find, we don't have the time to do it right now, but if you do this, you will find at times the context is using she-hole and some of these five different ways, they overlap. It'll be talking about the unseen realm and a place of eternal punishment. It'll be talking about uh, the grave, which is symbolically being used uh, for a place that is barren and dead in the wasteland. Okay? And so the context demands how we understand the word she-hole and how it's used. But for our purposes right now, trying to seek the question, if they did not receive the eternal inheritance until Jesus' blood received, well, where were they at? We can definitely say this biblically as we're inching down in the caverns of this precipice and this question. We could say this biblically. According to the Old Testament, all people who died, they went to a place called Sheol. What the Bible says, it's how they understood it. Okay. Now in the Old Testament, there wasn't given us, there wasn't provided us through the revelation of the Old Testament of any apparent distinction in Sheol between Abraham and non-believers, between Isaac and non-believers. They just talk about Sheol. But they don't talk about any distinction of all of the souls going to this unseen realm in the Old Testament. That distinction between the righteous and the wicked in this unseen realm is described only in the New Testament. And guess who provided the description? The Lord Jesus Himself. He does that, as you see in your sermon notes, in the Gospel of Luke. Many of you have read these verses and you've probably thought and asked yourself, what in the world does that mean? Right? Well, today that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure this out and notice as we're figuring out, there are some parts of the story, there's pieces connecting together that may show us a, 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 a more exhaustive understanding of the significance of the blood of Jesus Christ and how all of history... And in a sense, how all even, all not just human history, but all parts of creation, the spiritual realm, 
orient, orientate themselves around the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Because now, you see, we've left the visible. We've, we're, we're, we're tiptoeing. Oh, man, I don't have a talk. See what happens. Um, you know, all, what we've been going through in the book of Hebrews is you got the outer circle of the, the tabernacle, earthly tabernacle, the, 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 you know, the, the, the sacrifices. And, and, and the writer has been uh, unfolding for us the redemptive story in connection with these things that we sell, see, all the bells and smells of Judaism, right? And he's showing you how those things are all inferior and the significance of Christ's blood needs for that. But now look what he's doing. Now look what he's doing. He's going beyond physical creation to another area of creation, the spiritual realm. Whatever you want to say or make of Sheol as it's revealed in the New Testament, you do know that it's created. It wasn't eternal. There's only one eternal, and that's God. And so this realm is a created realm. And now, I think what's so significant about this is that he's showing us that this high priestly work of Jesus Christ, it not only affected this created realm, the earth. No, beloved, it affected everything. He, he's the, he is the one who is the focus of all things created. His priestly work, it, it, it is what everything was anticipating. Jesus gives us a distinction and I'm going to need the talk um, because that's a candy cane. That's not a piece of chalk. Um, yeah. Jesus is the one who gives any sort of um, insight into this place and perhaps a division or a deeper understanding of it, if, I, if, if, if we may. You see that in his account of the rich man and Lazarus. I give it to you in your sermon notes, Luke 22-23, and it came to pass, many of you know this verse, that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels into what Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell, that Greek word for hell is Hades. It's in Greek. Could have been Sheol if it was in the Old Testament using Hebrew, right? Remember, when you see it, it doesn't necessarily mean that final place of torment. Hades is Sheol. Hades has with it all those different applications as I just gave you for Sheol. It's just in the Greek, okay? Context demands how you understand it. So the rich man was buried, and he's in, he's in Hades. He lifts up his eyes, being in torment, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, so we understand how Sheol is described in the Old Testament. And Jesus is identifying here, using, it's translating the Greek, Hades, but he's identifying here where a righteous poor beggar goes in a place called Abraham's bosom, and the wicked man, the rich wicked man, goes into another place, and somehow he can see him, he's above him, the, 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 the righteous poor beggars above him, it says he lift up his eyes, being in torment, um, and he sees, he sees Abraham afar off. He has some kind of conscious knowledge of it. 
And he saw Lazarus there in Abraham's bosom. So, back to our question. Back to our question. If they didn't receive the internal inheritance because Jesus' blood hadn't shed, what did they receive? Based on the Old Testament understanding of Sheol, based on this one instance in the New Testament where Jesus describes people who have passed on in connection with Abraham's bosom, there's only two possible answers. According to my study, there's only two plausible answers. The first one could be described as the two-compartment theory. The two-compartment theory. Basically, it goes like this. This place, this unseen realm, this she-hole, was made up of two compartments. The upper compartment, we could, it would be described as Abraham's bosom, and the lower compartment would be the place where those waiting final judgment would go. So that would look graphically something like this. Don't be making fun of my artwork, Tyler. I heard you are. It would look graphically like this. All this biblical data is teaching, is saying, is, is at least, what I'm saying, those who hold to this theory, they're not without biblical warrant. They have these Bible verses and the deductions that they can rightfully make out of Scripture to go here, okay? Now, so here's Abraham's bosom, and uh, down here is the, the wicked, okay? And there's a large chasm here between the two. Jesus and Luke is obviously describing the place of the beggar as a place that's good. Uh, he's got water, right? The rich man, who's the wicked man, is looking up and saying, please give me a drink. Just put your finger in, in, in the water and give me a drop, right? So he's in a place of torment, and they're in a place of comfort, right? So the two-compartment theory of this realm, Hades, Sheol, until the blood of Jesus is shed, is where many believe that that's where the Old Testament saints who died prior to the sacrificial work of Jesus went to. Furthermore, they would say, this is how we make sense of Ephesians 4, 8-10. through 10, Where, many of you know this verse, it, it, it says, When He, Jesus, ascended on high, He led captivities in His train and gave gifts to men. What does He ascended mean? Except that He also descended in the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So, this understanding of where the Old Testament saints were prior to the sacrificial work of Christ, many believe, especially the early patristic fathers believed this, they believe that Jesus sheds His blood spiritually he comes and he empties out Abraham's bosom. This is what they're believing is happening during, they're not, they're not saying during the three days he's in the tomb that like on day one he didn't. No one's saying anything like that. But they're saying during that time, this was part of the messianic work of Jesus Christ to go into the unseen realm 
and lead the captivities captive who were there waiting and anticipating, receiving, laying hold of, Labano, the eternal inheritance that they were promised. This is part of that work. Now, some react to this, and they don't like this construction of what the text said. They don't like the construction. They feel that it could easily lend itself to places like purgatory, the doctrine of purgatory. Some of you may know that the doctrine of purgatory is a Roman Catholic doctrine that teaches that the dead go somewhere and that further things could be done, whether it's your prayers of their living relatives, uh, well, only, I'm sorry, I don't want to butcher the doctrine of purgatory. They believe that the living uh, people that are still alive, believers that are still alive, can pray for, uh, pay homage, do other works of good works and righteous deeds in order to help them get out of purgatory. All right? That's not what the two compartment theory is teaching. It's teaching that this was a holding chamber for the souls of people. The, the righteous were in a good place, the wicked were in a bad place, and they knew they were in a bad place and they couldn't do nothing about it, waiting for final judgment. And Jesus, upon the resurrection, I mean, upon the crucifixion, he descends in the lower part. He leads the captivities free. And now after that, there's no more need for Sheol. The only place that's, the only thing that's there, I'm sorry, in this, this theory is that the wicked are there. They're waiting for the final judgment to be cast into the lake and fire forever. Okay? So that's the two compartment theory. Now, in my studies... It seemed to me that this most lined up with what I was seeing in the text. I didn't read any commentators. I just was just studying the text. Well, then I started reading the Reformers. <laughs> and the Reformers don't like it. They don't like the two-compartment theory so much. Okay? And they're not without their reasons. So here it goes. I said there was two plausible answers. The first one is this one. There is some textual evidence to indicate it. Answer number two. Answer number two is simply that Sheol is another way to refer to the place of the wicked that they're going to be judged. And Abraham's bosom is another place to refer to heaven. Okay? Here's how it goes. There are more than a few instances we must admit that where the Bible indicates that there were individuals in the Old Testament prior to the death of Jesus' blood being shed, prior to his resurrection, that, went, that died but went directly into the presence of God. They didn't go to no place called Abraham's bosom. Uh, Enoch and Elijah, those are very clear instances where God called them up to himself. Amen? So in other words, when Elijah got there, Enoch was already there. Right? Enoch wasn't hanging out in Abraham's bosom waiting for Jesus' blood to be shed later on to bring him up and join the party. Okay? We have to acknowledge that. That does cause some kind of problems or tensions with the first you know, answer. I think, however, if you think about it, those are very unique circumstances. I mean, those are the only two men in all of the redemptive history that have never tasted a death, a physical death. Well, we got some more problems, though, with the first one. I've given you these verses in your sermon notes. There are a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that seem to suggest that the Old Testament saints anticipated being in heaven, being in and embracing the internal inheritance upon their death. 
The Psalms are repleted with this. I'm just giving you two. Psalms 32.6 Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, David said, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. After his life is over, he's expecting he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's talking about the eternal inheritance there. Psalm 73, 24-25, a little bit more to the point. You guide me with your counsel, referring to Yahweh, and afterwards you will take me into glory, whom I have in heaven. Whom ha-? He asks a question. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth, and the heaven there, that's not Sheol. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. And so there, there is this language in the Psalms which indicates that the Old Testament saints understood that when they passed away, they would be in the presence of the Lord forever. Now, in opposition to theory number one, the two-compartment theory, good old John Gill comes in with the axe. And he says, according to him, based on Ecclesiastes 12.7, this does it for him. He said this is how he settles the fact that Old Testament saints, when they died, went immediately to be in heaven. Here's the verse. You have it in your notes. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. You see, Gil says right there, your body's going to the dirt, back to the earth where it was, and your spirit, your soul, shall return unto God who gave it. Case closed. He drops the microphone, he walks away from the conversation. These truths, I think, can be described as the already not yet blood sacrifice of Christ theory. So you got the first one, two compartment theory. This one is the already not yet blood sacrifice of Christ. Follow me on this. 1 Peter 1.19, you have in your sermon notes. We see where it says, With the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who, this lamb, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So Christ's sacrificial priestly work was always part of the plan to bring God glory through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. It wasn't made up halfway through the story. You know what I mean? It was always from the foundations of the world certain to happen. Revelations 13.8, along these same lines. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Notice what it says about this Lamb, who was decreed, predestined from the foundation of the world to be slain. Notice what it says. It gives us more information. This From the book of the Lamb, slain from the foundations of the world. These texts, 1 Peter, Revelations, they do in fact teach that God decreed from eternity past that the blood of Christ would be sacrificed for the redemption of all of those who are called His church. And furthermore, the Bible clearly teaches that God's will can never be thwarted or changed. So the blood of Christ, prior to it actually being spilled in time, space, and history, can be counted as sure as done because God decreed that it would be so. And so, with this view, it is biblically plausible that the Old Testament elect, upon their death, went immediately into the presence of God. 
Now, before we form any conclusions, beloved, we have to be humble enough to say that there is not enough clarity of data for us to be dogmatic. The two-compartment theory, I think a lot of the reformers didn't like it because they were so close to dealing and unpacking and having to deal with the heresy of purgatory. Because as I studied it, it is very plausible and it has a lot of biblical data. But I can't be dogmatic about it. I can't stand here with a clear conscience to tell you that's how you have to interpret this and divide this word and what this means. But, at the same time, I recognize the position of the already not yet blood sacrifice of Christ as well. And so, you know, we don't walk out of here saying, well, you know, what do we say then here? That the Bible is just not sufficient to give the answer? Well, no, it is. And some pastors wouldn't even go down in these trenches. They would just kind of go, they would fly kind of high over this. And maybe you'd be sitting in the quick pew asking that question and not really, you know, explore the answer. They just fly high over it. And, but you can, deduce it, you can deduce this and be certain about this. Jesus' blood, we sung the hymn, My Hope is Buddle, Nothing Else. Uh, the writer of the hymn said, Jesus' blood and sacrifice was the life gate. We can clearly say that Jesus' blood was significant in the old covenant, specifically related to the saints who died under its administration, under its covenant umbrella that they were under. We can definitely say this. Jesus' blood was the heaven gate. No person ever will have possession, Labano, heaven, the eternal state, without the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, why didn't you say that just 20 minutes ago? Well, because I want you to understand that there's a lot more to the story (laughs) that you can explore. And that I believe that this inspired writer was helping us to see. Okay? Uh, For me personally, yeah, I think you can already tell where my flag's planted. That's how I'm understanding Luke 16 and Ephesians 4 and a couple other places in the Bible. I I think in a spiritual sense, Jesus Christ did do this victorious conquering work as the Messiah. All right. Notice here, moving on, concluding thoughts from verse 15. Notice with me, who was it, guys, who had an interest, ownership, Labano, of these blessings of sins being forgiven, of laying claim of the internal inheritance, whether it was earlier or later, right? Who was it? It was they which are called. And this is talking about that blessed reality that he talked about in chapter 3 already, and we looked at the heavenly calling. There's examples in the New Testament of this, Acts 2.37, when people heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit pricked their hearts. It's this inward calling of the Spirit of God to come and to trust in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice as your only hope and deliverance from the condemnation and the sins which you deserve for those things, those transgressions that you have committed. For this cause, let's look at the verse again. For this cause, I'm going to find my NASB translation. That was a good one. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new, second or better covenant, so that since a death has taken place, His death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, 
those who have been called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who the Spirit called to believe this promise of a promised Messiah, they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so now we have a better understanding of how Christ's blood had a dual covenantal significance in the plan of God in redemptive history. And as part of my introduction, I said, beloved, in concluding, this ought to help us to stand back in awe and in just wonderment of the majesty of the important work that Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross and give us further confidence with certainty, further optimism in times of dismay that this gospel's true. Look at the possible impact that his work had, not only in the created physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. And you just think to yourself, oh, God, who am I? Who am I, as David said, that you would be mindful of me? That you would send your spirit, that you would call me and open up my eyes to this truth. That you would love me to such a degree that you would not leave me in the depths of my sins and my depravity, blinded, ignorant of who you are. But you would send your spirit and you would begin to draw me to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and open my eyes up to the glory of who you are. And furthermore, give me real significant and purpose. Friends, I'm the first one to say the gospel isn't about you, but it certainly includes you. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. But He saves poor, wretched sinners, which you and I are. And it includes us in the sense that we offer Him our worship. We offer Him our lives. We find in Him our purpose and our significance for our existence. Coming back to Acts 28. And with this, knowing for sure He is who He is. Knowing He has done what He promised He would do. Friends, Let us find then, therefore, what it is and where we're at in our own lives. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, O God, that You show us the significance of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and specifically the purpose and the reason, the cause of his death. Lord, we learned, if anything today, that the significance of Jesus' blood that was shed upon Calvary, Lord, it expands much broader than the borders and the boundaries of those who lived only during his time and afterwards. We see today in a much more profound way that it breaks down all boundaries and borders in all of creation. And Lord, His blood is the significant thing which was required to give anyone who has ever lived salvation and the possession of the eternal bliss. Lord, help us, we pray, with these truths that we have learned about Your Son and our Savior to better build us up in the confidence that He is what the Bible says about Him, its own testimony, the great I Am. He is the the promised Lamb from the foundations of the world. 
He is the deliverer. He is the conqueror. Oh, help us to see, especially in light of these intricate truths contained in this verse we looked at today, that he is to be high and exalted and lifted up above all that is, and that someday all of creation will bow and confess and give an acknowledgement to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Make him ever so precious to us, we pray, Father. Help us to see him more and more each day for who he is, a comforter, a friend, a savior, a glorious, redemptive um, a deliverer. Help us, Lord, to just have a more full-orbed understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We bless you and we thank you in his holy and precious name. Amen.